Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Howard Hendricks. Here's what Prof. Hendricks said to Dallas Morning News in 2003. You're looking at a completely fulfilled human being. If I died today, having produced some of the people God has given me the privilege of shaping, it will have been worth showing up on the planet. According to a 2003 Dallas Morning News article about him, the combined ministries of just eight of his former students, a veritable who's who of evangelical Christians, reach close to 30,000 people in pews every week. And you add radio programs and books to that number, the audience expands to millions. Today, Howard Hendricks focuses on the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 20. I want to focus your attention upon the first 16 verses of Matthew 20. Shirley MacLaine, self-styled great high priestess of the cult of narcissism so pervasive in our society, was interviewed by a reporter from the Washington Post who asked her, Miss McLean, what drives you? And in part, she responded with, the most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all of that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. What a stark contrast to our Lord, of whom it was said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Every Christian man and woman is compelled to ask the question, why? Am I serving Jesus Christ? Am I enamored of the gifts? Or am I enamored of the giver? Am I in it for what I'm going to get out of it? Or for what I can give to it? Now the verbal answers to that question come quickly, but often superficially. Paul instructed us in Romans 12 and verse 2, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. The option, be transformed. How? By the overhauling, by the renewing, by the restructuring of your mind. And I believe in Matthew 20, our Lord is instructing his disciples 
as to the kind of mentality essential to Christian service. The story is simple, but the implications are profound. The owner of a vineyard went downtown early in the morning and saw a collection of laborers around the union hall looking for work. He agreed with them that they would work for a denarius for the day. Very acceptable, very common for a day laborer or a soldier. About nine o'clock, he comes down and sees a number of others who are idle, who are not employed, and apparently he has a pressing need. It's altogether possible that he was facing the late September grape harvest, which was usually followed by the heavy rains. And so there's a sense of urgency in his seeking employee, because after all, they didn't get the harvest in, it would be ruined by the rain. But with the nine o'clock group, he doesn't make a bargain. Instead, he says, look, I'll pay you what is right. Comes again at 12 and again at 3, makes the same arrangement. All they have is a promise to go on, the integrity of the owner. And he shows up again at 5 o'clock, one hour before quitting time. And he says to a group, how come you're not working? They say, well, no one has hired us. No one needs us. No one wants us. And with the fling of his hand, they go out to the field to work, undoubtedly thinking, you know, we're only going to work an hour. Probably we'll only be paid a pittance, but that's better than not being paid at all. Now, the problem comes when the six o'clock whistle blew. Because when they line up at the pay window, the owner breaks with tradition and insists that they pay those who have been hired last first. Well, you can imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm on the part of a group of people, some of whom had only worked for an hour, when they open the pay envelope to discover they got a drachma. They've been paid for an entire day's work. And the same with those at three and noon and nine. But the last to be paid, the first to be hired, are thinking to themselves, my shattered nerve. If these guys are getting a full day's pay for an hour or for a half a day, what are we going to get paid? I'll bet we've got a bonus coming. But when they open the pay envelope, they discover they had a denarius and they were bent out of shape. So as they're grumbling among themselves, they finally get the job steward to go into the owner. And when he does, he says, in effect, look, we've been working in that sad grape field all day. And all we got is a drachma. And some of these people have only been working for 60 minutes. And they got a full day's pay. It's really not fair. 
we've been shafted. And it's not too hard to identify with these individuals. Most of us, if we were standing on the sidelines, would have been glad to go over, pick up a placard, get in line. Now, why did Jesus tell this story? Well, obviously, he did not tell it because he was teaching economics. Jesus Christ is not giving a Labor Day message before the AFL-CIO. <laughs> it's to management labor problems in the 20th century. Can you imagine what would happen in our society if a businessman pulled this off? I mean, man, in less than 24 hours, he'd be dead in the water. Imagine what the newspapers and the television stations would do with this story. And besides, a lot of them would have been crushed in the five o'clock rush. I believe the secret to the story is found in chapter 19. Chapter 19 and verse 16, we are introduced to the rich young ruler who asks, teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? He's interested in a contract. He's interested in having Jesus Christ spell out for him in detail precisely what he must do in order to guarantee that he will have eternal life. So Jesus says, keep the law. Oh, he said, man, I've kept that since I've been a boy. The Lord recognizes that this man needs some radical spiritual surgery. And so he says to him in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the rich young ruler reads the large print in this contract, he's greatly disturbed. That's more of a bargain than he can, had bargained for. And as a result, he tears up the contract and walks away. Now, the inter interview produced some problems for the disciples, because after they hear this, they've got more questions than they had before. And in verse 27, Peter is particularly hung up. He chokes over that statement. The reason we love Peter is that he's usually willing to say what most of us only think. And all of us at one time have asked this question for ourselves. And if you haven't, you will. He asks the question, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Then what will there be for us? You see, he falls into the same trap of the rich young ruler. What are we getting out of it? And in so doing, he underscores the first danger in terms of Christian service. And that is, we have got to jettison a consumer mentality toward the ministry. What's in it for us? And by the way, McDonald's 
reinforces that thinking every time it says, we do it all for you. You see, this is radical thinking. You've got to break with the herd and the society which has acculturated you. Now, wasn't it easy, interesting to see Jesus' response to Peter? He could have embarrassed him, could have put him on a guilt trip, could have had him wondering at the end of the encounter why he'd ever been so stupid to ask the question. All Jesus could have said is, now precisely what did you give up, Peter? And after he comes up with his little dinky list, then Jesus would proceed to tell him exactly what he received. And he's embarrassed out of his gourd. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says to him in verse 28, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his millennial throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging in twelve tribes of Israel. And furthermore, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters Sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much. And if that's not enough, will ultimately inherit eternal life. But, but, many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm not going to fit your little scheme of things. I'm not going to pay you by the hour. I'm not going to pay you by the job. I'm not going to enter into a contractual relationship with you. I'm going to pay you in a way you do not expect. You're going to receive a reward. But you're not going to receive a wage. In the opening chapters of the book of Job, we are graciously able to listen in on a conversation that God had with Satan. And you remember God said to him, uh, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, he's upright, he fears me, and furthermore, he repudiates evil. And, Job, and Satan says, big deal. Obviously, he's doing that. You're paying him. You're bribing him. But you take away the goodies. And then watch what happens. So under the permission of God, Satan strips everything away from Job that a man regards as significant. And Job says, Naked came I into the world, and naked I'm going to leave it. The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the text says, in all of this, Job did not sin. Job did not blame God. You see, Job understood that he was not in a contractual relationship with God. We cannot place God under obligation to do something for us 
Because we have done something for us, for him. God owes us nothing except eternal punishment. Used to love to hear Dr. Chafer say it. He must have said it a hundred times when I was a student. Don't ask God for what you deserve because you'll get hell. God does not treat us on the basis of merit. Everything we have received is never on the basis of our performance. It's on the basis of his grace. And I believe our Lord is teaching Peter and us that the reward is bound up in the work. See, we tend to think because of our legalistic orientation that the reward comes after the work. And I think this is one of the great problems those of us here at the seminary face, whether we're on the faculty or the staff or the student body. We instinctively think that somehow, if we work hard, if we do what is expected of us, we're going to obligate God to do something for us. And nothing could be further from the truth. I met one of our graduates this summer. He's been out about eight or nine years. He said something very significant to me. He said, Prof, I have discovered. I did well in seminary, and he graduated near the top of his class. I got a degree, but I never got an education. I spent all of my time thinking I was preparing for ministry and never understanding I was in ministry. See, how you handle your assignments, how you work on your projects, how we teach our classes, how the staff serves us faithfully is not preparation for service, it is service. you learned the reward of the work? Or is it all the bromide when we get out of here? Then it's going to happen. I will give you a reward, but I'm not going to pay you a wage. On another occasion in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, Our Lord said, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. There is a second thing that has got to go. Not only the consumer mentality, but what I am calling the competitive mentality. I want you to note verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Watch the danger of unbiblical, unrealistic expectations. You're going to be burned every time. Isn't it interesting? As long as these men were living in relationship to the owner, there was no problem. It's only when they began to compare themselves with others that they got wiped out. 
Men and women, I'm here to tell you, if you are focused on the laborers rather than on the goodness of God, you're going to be in deep trouble in the ministry. And the only thing you will ever see is the denarius. And that tragically is fast becoming the hallmark of 20th century ministry. Comparison is the highest form of carnality. You remember how Saul got burned with it. The women sang it. I suspect that's what made it so significant. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And when he heard that, it ate his lunch. And he spent the rest of his life fighting David rather than the Philistine. John chapter 21. Our Lord says to Peter, I want to tell you precisely the way you are going to die. And after he hears that, follow me. And about that time, Joe, John, comes across the path. And Peter says, uh, well, well, what about him? <laughs> and the Lord says, what's that to you? Follow me. You see, the basis of ministry is never comparing yourself with someone else. The Lord never compares you with anyone except Jesus Christ. Yet we spend the most of our, the bulk of our time in ministry in competition rather than cooperation. When I believe the Lord only wants to ask, what are you doing with what I gave you? Your gifts, your opportunities, your time. There's a final lesson for me in this passage. And that is, I believe we need to declare a moratorium on a critical mentality. Did you notice as we looked at the story in verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landover. Owner. And they have two complaints. Their first complaint is, man, we work 12 hours and these guys only work for 60 minutes. Furthermore, we worked during the heat of the day. We had the long haul. These guys worked in the cool of the evening. First Corinthians chapter 10. The passage God continues to bring back to me for some reason or other, I guess, I desperately need it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate. All drank. But, but, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And then he gives five reasons why that's true. And interestingly enough, the fifth one is because they grumble, they griped, they complain, they were shot through with a critical spirit. You look in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, you will discover one of the things that God hates is a critical spirit. Those who sow discord among the brethren. And it's so easy 
the process of serving Jesus Christ to feel sorry for yourself. I was invited to preach a little church outside of Dallas some time ago. Not exactly large, but an opportunity to minister the Word. I think there were 27 people there. It was rally day. <laughs> and I preached with all of fervor and the passion of my heart. And when I got through, would you believe it? Nobody, I mean nobody in that outfit even said thank you. In fact, nobody even said the Lord bless you. Which being interpreted means there will be no honorarium. <laughs> you got to learn the language in this community. And man, I get out of my car and I'm stewing in my juice, running off at the mouth. Finally, I came up for air. This very sweet, lovely person sitting next to me said, Howie, who are you serving? And I ended up under the floorboard. And I cannot escape that question sentence. You see, if you are in it for the wage, if you are in it on the basis of merit, then you're going to spend the bulk of your ministry with a critical spirit. Now, mind you, most of us don't care if the Lord blesses people, even other people. The question is, why not me? I mean, you know, here's my roommate over in the door, and the guy has angels dropping checks in his box. <laughs> and I got to go out here and work hard. And then I got a friend in the student body, would you believe it, he's in Hebrew with me, and man, a guy studies one hour a night and he aces every exam. And I spend 20 hours and near flunk it. This guy, who was a classmate of mine, is a big church. Everybody knows him. Nobody knows me. I'm lost out here in Goonie Land. In fact, I'm even wondering if God forgot me. Then you need to hear, the last will be first. And the first will be last. Henry Morrison, great Methodist, missionary to China, came home for his final furlough. His ship pulled into the New York Harbor, and on that ship was former President Teddy Roosevelt. No longer in office, but still a hero. The bands were playing, and the crowd was shouting, and the flags were waving. Everybody was cheering. There wasn't even one person out on the pier waiting for him. And he said as he stood there on the rail of that ship, his spirit within went bitter. In fact, he got angry. And in the midst of his anger, he heard a voice within. Henry, you're not home yet. 
And he said he looked up into heaven and he felt that he could almost see the men and women who had trusted Christ under his ministry in China and who had been discipled and who were making an impact for Christ in that great country. And then the Lord appeared and said to him, Henry, welcome home, you good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for relating to the most practical and realistic areas of our life. We can rejoice this morning that you are not a God who's mocking us, who's asking us to do that which is humanly impossible. We remember that our Lord did not heal everyone, did not minister to everyone, but he did the Father's will. And I thank you, Lord, for the realism of your word that gives peace even in the midst of testing. For Christ's sake, amen. You've been listening to Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately known as The Prof. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.